Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name's Nesh Nicklich and my guest today is Professor Kenneth Packenham. I invited him initially onto the show to talk about his career looking at growth in the face of adverse adversity but what I found was I got a whole lot more than that in talking to Kenneth and I'm really wanting to encourage everyone to listen to this episode about how we can go out and find that growth there are certain elements and ways in which we can approach whether it's trauma adversity difficulties um, you know hardships in life and 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 the elements that will help us in progressing through those or at least having some idea as to how to do that. Before we do so, I want to introduce uh, Kenneth Packenham, uh, PhD. He's a, a emeritus professor of clinical and health psychology in the School of Psychology at the University of Queensland. His research and clinical practice uh, span over 40 years. He was inspired by the resilience of some people with serious illness as he, uh, and as such has committed much of his career investigating the process that fosters personal growth in the context of health adversities and also translating his findings into interventions that will help people live fully with illness. Through his 160 plus publications, over 70 conference presentations, three research awards and more than $3 million worth of competitive grant funding, he has become a leader in the application of positive health frameworks to severe chronic illnesses and to caregiving in these contexts. His research has helped to inform government policies, particularly those relating to carers and established and establish interventions and assessment protocols within government and community services. The Living Fully with Illness theme integrates his early research in stress coping theory, his mid-career shift shifts towards incorporating the rise of positive psychology and his current and future focus on acceptance and commitment therapy. Using ACT to extend his research on living fully with illness has also invigorated his teachings. He developed the first ACT University course in Australia. This course integrates training in therapists' uh, competencies and self-care skills and shows, uh, and shows published empirical evidence of fostering competent and resilient clinicians. Through peer-reviewed publications, conference keynote presentations, and three teaching awards, he has become a leader in integrating training in therapists and self-care competences into clinical psych psychology curricula uh, using an ACT framework. 
He served in many influential professional roles, such as the chair of the Registration Committee of the Psychologist Board of Queensland for over 10 years, director of the University of Queensland Psychology Clinic for seven years, honours convener for three years, and member of the editorial boards for six international journals. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Professor Kenneth Packenham. Kenneth, a big thank you for coming onto the show today to talk to us about growth in the face of adversity. I know this is something that you have looked at for some 40 plus years and, and have written about extensively. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure to be here and thank you for the invitation. Kenneth, can you talk, to, talk me through a little bit about how you got into this space? It's a long time to spend you know, a, a career taking a bit of a deep dive into adversity and how to find growth uh, in, in, in that space. And, and I understand that growth you know, lo- lo- looks at you know, not only how we manage uh, ourselves uh, on a personal level, but also looking beyond that uh, and also appreciating that adversity is, is you know, wide-ranging, whether it's health adversity, financial, relationship difficulties, mental health, so on. Um, there's lots of things that we encounter as human beings. Yeah, I suppose there are three sources of inspiration for my investigation of growth in adversity. One was my clinical work as a, as a psychologist where I was um, uh, astonished at how some people managed to uh, experience and demonstrate personal growth despite having experienced a lot of adversity in their lives. And then my research, in my research, I also saw that um, generally speaking in uh, adversity, uh, whether it's uh, a natural disaster like an earthquake or a fire, or whether it's um, illness or other types of adversity, most people um, appear to manage reasonably well and make their way through the adversity. And there is a small proportion that actually uh, grow and flourish uh, almost as a consequence of the adversity. But of course, there is a significant minority who, um, who don't do well during adversity and in fact suffer greatly. Then there was my own personal experience of uh, having uh, experienced extreme um, trauma during my childhood through uh, childhood domestic violence uh, and many other. And I I guess that what I learned um, even before uh, my formal psychology training uh, was that the difficulties I had experienced as a younger person uh, could actually uh, bring about uh, some insight benefits of various types, such as insight, such as um, broader perspectives on life, broader perspectives of myself. Um, it, It helped me be a more courageous person in terms of being willing to face my pain and deal with it directly rather than run from it. 
So uh, they're the sources of my inspiration, my clinical work and observations of people growing through adversity. My research that demonstrated that there were significant proportions of people that seemed to cope well with adversity. And then my own personal experiences of adversity and making my way through that. Help us understand how you did your research. What, what, what are the sort of ways in which we, uh, which my apologies, you and, and your team would look at uh, measuring adversity and how someone, whether it bounces back or, you know, maybe potentially even goes and flourishes, what do we look at? What, what, what are the types of measures and, and, and timeframes that, that uh, you've done over the many years that you've looked at this? So the, con- the adversity context that I've most frequently researched is health adversity. So these are people with uh, severe neurological disorders like multiple sclerosis, cancer, heart disease, etc. Um, the measures or indicators of uh, resilience or uh, managing adversity um, are, by way, are by way of um, measuring levels of distress by measuring um, positive outcomes like uh, positive states of mind, positive emotions, um, and quality of life. And sometimes, uh, specifically, resilience, using measures of resilience. The thing that uh, I have been most interested in uh, as part of my research has been how people... Uh, make meaning out of adversity and how important that process is to enable them to readjust their goals, to um, keep moving forward in terms of uh, pursuing the things that are important to them. So making meaning has been one of the uh, processes that I've been interested in, in terms of what role it might play to help people uh, cope with the adversity and move move forward. And how do people generally make that meaning or, or interpret yeah. these these, these uh, very difficult adversities? What 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 have you? Seen because I'm assuming a lot of it is quite automated, and at least in the initial stages. Yeah, they are automated. People don't necessarily uh, consciously think about, oh, well, you know, here's this terrible thing happened. Um, how can I reconstruct uh, my understanding of this in my life and what it means to me? It is uh, more of an unconscious. Uh, a spontaneous process for some. And uh, there are probably two broad meaning-making processes. One is benefit-finding, which uh, involves uh, attempts to try and identify what's positive and what's significantly meaningful for an individual in the adversity. So, for example, some people with... um, uh, who have been diagnosed with illness problems uh, might identify a positive as being, 
well, this has helped me uh, appreciate the importance of living in the present. Um, you know, it's a very common um, outcome of being diagnosed with a, a serious health problem that people all of a sudden get a different perspective on moment-to-moment -moment living and how precious and how important that is. Uh, so that's one of the ways in which something that might appear negative or unfortunate can be uh, slanted towards it actually being helpful or useful or growthful in the context of that person's life. And that's not necessary. That doesn't diminish the seriousness or the significance of the adversity. Uh, and, and I think that's really important, that two things can be held at once. One is, one is the, the, the seriousness and the painfulness of the adversity, but the other is, well, what's in this experience that may advance my, my life and, and make me a better person? Does that sometimes get in the way? Uh, sorry, Kenneth. Does that sometimes get in the way because it can sometimes feel as though they are opposing one another so the adversity and finding something positive uh kind yeah. of be, being in conflict rather than coexisting yeah it's and, and it's i think that that is um illustrated in uh, in a frequent comment that people make to others who are in adversity which is be positive think positive look at the positives uh and while to some extent that's important, it's also equally important to be in touch with the reality in the present. And adversity, by its very nature, has as part of its reality some discomfort and some pain. So we as humans are extraordinary. We can hold and watch and embrace those two seemingly opposing forces. So that's one of the ways that people make meaning, benefit finding. What was the other one that you wanted? And so to the other is uh, to make sense of it. And uh, so if some difficulty occurs, perhaps a very traumatic relationship breakup, uh, an, an unexpected um, untimely death of a loved one, perhaps um, experiencing some sort of an assault uh, or an illness or a natural disaster. Uh, it's natural for us to want to understand why it happened, why did I experience it, why am I here and involved in this? What how will I understand how this happens? So it's our drive to, to bring order, to make sense, to understand uh, significant events in our life. And so people will attempt to try and make sense of uh, the adversity, and that's part of the meaning-making. And if I think of some of the... Uh, research that I've conducted around this, 
and how people have made sense of various illnesses. They might use explanations that involve many different things. They might try and find um, physical explanations, even though um, there is no conclusive biological or biomedical explanation for the illness. The individual may nevertheless come up with their own biological explanation or story for why the illness has occurred. And then they might come up with uh, personal reasons like, well, you know, it was the stress in my life. This was a, a wake-up call and I needed this because um, as a result of it, I've changed my lifestyle. Um, unfortunately, sometimes the explanations can be very uh, pessimistic and self-derogatory, like, um, you know, I've done certain bad things in my life and, and this is a punishment. But uh, the more realistically and um, uh, the more it will be helpful. And is, is, it, is it the same reasons that we're trying to find some type of order, some sort of explanation that we formulate a narrative, you know, that might not necessarily be backed up by whether it's the science or the medicine uh, where someone might say it's because I've eaten too much of X that, uh, you know, it's, it's finally caught up with me and, and, and that's why when um, – uh, medicine doesn't operate in that way that, that can explain it with, with, with cause and effect, uh, but someone might just try and put it in order to, to have a, a way to talk about it or to think about it. Yeah, the sense-making is not necessarily empirically based. The sense-making is not necessarily logical. The sense-making is not necessarily rooted in reality. Um, it's typically idiosyncratic. You know, this is my life. This is who I am. I've experienced this terrible thing. How can I personally understand this and make sense of it? So uh, the sense-making is, is, is typically very, very idiosyncratic. And what are the proportions of how we generally respond. You know, I, I always think that human beings are incredibly robust and, and uh, whether we like it or not, you know, life continues on post-traumatic events, uh, uh, post-adversity. Um, uh, what are the proportion of numbers in terms of or percentages where people are able to maybe, you know, continue on uh, at least a, a reasonable trajectory that they were on prior to the adversity uh, yeah. versus those who, you know, maybe take, go, start going backwards, so to speak. So there's um, actually been uh, a, a review published, recently published, on trying to estimate uh, proportions of people who bounce back after adversity so the review covered all sorts of different types of research that had examined a variety of uh, adversity, some of the natural disasters, some of the mass shootings, et cetera, et cetera. So I can't remember the exact figures, but most 
people exhibit a resilience uh, pathway uh, from the adversity, approximately around 65%. However, there are some, a small percentage, about 10%, who experience initially a resilient type of response but have a delayed adverse reaction to the adversity. And so some months or perhaps even a year or so later exhibit some deterioration. Um, and uh, a fairly small proportion, probably about 15, 20% uh, evidence a chronic uh, problematic progression from the adversity. But, uh, you know, most people will uh, make some uh, positive, positive movement uh, from, from the adversity. And so it's of interest to try and identify the factors that protect some people in, in adversity and whereby they exhibit resilience. Um, and those factors that are a risk and for others, um, uh, you know, encourage some sort of deterioration. And sense-making or meaning-making, meaning-making, I should say, is one of those protective factors. Before we go into the protective factors, could you talk us maybe through some of the risk factors? So the risk factors would include um, past trauma or past adverse experiences, particularly adverse childhood experiences. Although it's, it's difficult to pull these factors out and isolate them because it depends not only whether the person has experienced prior adversity, um, it also depends how they have dealt with that. So if they've had past adversity, and if they've managed that adversity, adversity quite effectively, then typically they've built the skills that hold them in good stead to cope with future or subsequent adversity. But if someone's had adversity and not been able to manage that, um, then they're at greater risk in uh, not coping well with future adversity. Um, it also depends on how many um, co-occurring difficulties the person is trying to manage in the midst of the adversity that they're facing at the moment. So if, if uh, some difficult or problematic situation arises and the person is also grappling, for example, with an illness, or a, uh, a chronically stressful relationship, or poverty, or discrimination of some sort, then uh, adversity comes of significant co-occurring uh, problems, then it jeopardises the person's ability to be able to cope with adversity. So some other risk factors include um, uh, an over-reliance on avoidance coping or an over-reliance on problem-solving in the face of adversity. So if you're a person that has a tendency to uh, 
always go to avoidance in difficulty or always tend to problem solve, then um, in the face of adversity, um, those that over-reliance on those strategies are likely to be unhelpful. Avoidance, because um, uh, it's important to, uh, at, at some stage, face up to what one is experiencing in relation to the adversity and to the reality of the adversity. Uh, and uh, even though you might take a positive approach to the adversity, the reality is, is that the adversity by its very nature is going to elicit um, discomfort and distress. So naturally, that reality of there being some distress needs to be um, accepted, integrated and managed up front and not avoided. Problem solving, over-reliance and problem solving is problematic because um, typically you're limited in the extent to which you can change the adversity. So if you're diagnosed with a chronic neurological disorder, there are some things you can do, problem solving, problem solving like treatment, medical consultations, looking after your own health. But there is inevitable realities associated with the chronic illness from what we know from the data that you can't control. Uh, and so trying to problem solve a problem away will only create more distress, frustration and angst. So it's a balance between some problem solving, um, some avoidance, is, is helpful, but also uh, acceptance and approach to what is difficult. So it's a bit of a balancing act. And I suppose it could be summarised uh, by being flexible in your coping. That marries up really beautifully with the ACT process, the, the left-hand side of the hexaflex where, uh, you know, diffusion and acceptance live uh, and obviously that, that that's in the uh, understanding of the process that still needs to be great mindfulness to observe the situation while also on the other side having some committed action to be able to make some changes you know for example ensuring uh, problem solving by base based on ensuring let's say for example having some improved sleep or some better dietary intake or whatever that might be for that, that particular condition. Uh, so I can see that psychological flexibility uh, comes from really being able to observe the situation, see it for what it is and, and sit with that pain, that discomfort, uh, the trauma, the hurt, the, 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 the great loss, while also having potentially some things to do uh, uh, while, while you're in that, that, that space of pain. Can we step over to looking at the other side of the equation, which is the protective factors? Yeah. Well, you've just uh, summarised uh, a couple of the uh, protective factors. I've already mentioned meaning-making, and I might come back to that in a minute. 
But um, if we look at the heads of flags, then um, as you've mentioned, acceptance uh, is a protective factor. Uh, accepting what you can't change. Uh, accepting what uh, is not controllable uh, is, is a protective factor. And the other is diffusion where you notice mental activity and uh, go with mental activity that is that you regard as helpful and let mental activity pass that is unhelpful. So um, that's a really useful skill and very protective. Can I just jump in quickly, Kenneth? Yeah. I really love that term, mental activity. Yeah. It observes it and, and describes it with uh, that non-judgment approach to, to then allow us to decide what's helpful and yeah. not. I've, I haven't heard it described that way before, so thank you for that. that that's really lovely. Yeah, and mental activity includes, um, of course, anything that goes on in the mind. And, uh, and there's all sorts of things that go on in mind. Uh, there's pictures and videos that um, come up in our mind. There are thoughts, words, sentences, exclamations that come up in our mind. There are memories that come up in our mind. Um, so this is all a conglomeration of uh, fascinating, interesting, important uh, mental activity. And we have this capacity to observe mental activity and we can choose and select out what is going to be helpful and what is going to be unhelpful. So in the context of adversity, if I can watch uh, my mental activity and make a judgment about whether it's going to be helpful uh, and go with it and let the other stuff pass, then I'm going to be in a really good position to um, manage the adversity because I won't be driven or controlled by the mental activity in my head, which is not always helpful. Which is the opposite from avoidance, that, that we're yeah. able, to, uh, uh, able to sit and observe the mental activity without trying to avoid it. For example, yeah. you know, a classic version might be you know, drinking alcohol for yeah. someone who has post-traumatic stress uh, is fairly understood. It's not an uncommon um, approach for some uh, to try and switch the, the, the brain off, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, avoidance is one way of, of managing unhelpful um, mental activity and in the long term that's not very useful but another unhelpful strategy for managing unhelpful mental activity is um, overthinking or rumination so that's where uh, something comes up in my mind and I just get so absorbed in it and lost in it and if that mental activity is unhelpful then I'm getting lost in a, in a downward vortex and uh, that's not helpful. So the idea, the ideal is to watch the uh, mental activity and then make some judgment and you do this quickly and almost automatically the more you practice it, 
uh, as to whether this mental activity is helpful or unhelpful and then take the appropriate action. I, I was just going to ask, are there, are there certain attributes or qualities or personalities that uh, are able to do this a little bit more naturally, so to speak, without putting in the same volume of uh, effort to do so? And is there something that we can learn from those persons? I think there, I think there is. So if we do research in a general community, um, and we look at people that don't have significant mental health problems, so this is just the average person in the community, we find great variations in the levels or abilities of people to do diffusion. And uh, so these are people in the general community, very few of them would have had any formal training or experience in how to do diffusion, watching mental activity. Um, but nevertheless, uh, there is uh, varying degrees of natural ability to be able to do this. So we don't really know precisely what it is um, that enables some people to do this more naturally than others. But um, I suspect that uh, people who are more self-reflective uh, and who engage, for example, in self-reflective pursuits like writing or painting or dancing or singing, um, I, I, they, they're going to be better primed and better positioned to be able to go in and out of being absorbed in mental activity because that's the nature of self-reflection. When you reflect on inner experiencing, your reactions to things, etc. I think that people who have um, had some experience in and have cultivated spirituality uh, are, are probably better positioned to more naturally observe their inner experiencing, including mental activity, because, um, you know, encouraging spirituality brings in that other dimension, that dimension of awareness of, awareness of body sensations, awareness of mental activity, awareness of my automatic responses to something. Is there also potential... Is there also potential in that space of, of practised meaning-making uh, that has potentially occurred prior to a trauma uh, happening where there's an understanding that things happen in life and they're not often ex explainable? Um, so maybe yeah. the acceptance uh, has been spoken about for, for a number of years or um, hopefully decades yeah. for some before they, before they meet um, great hardship. Yeah. Yeah, people who um, have a greater tendency to uh, accept and approach uh, adversity, um, people who have in, in small ways, as you say, uh, attempted to create meaning and understanding of situations they've experienced, they're all going to be better positioned for acceptance uh, and diffusion. 
But uh, in relation to meme making, I think that um, meme making is really interesting because um, some proponents of the acceptance and the mindfulness, present moment awareness, diffusion uh, processes, proponents of those processes, perhaps unwittingly, uh, cast a sort of negative feel about thinking and thoughts and mental activity. And um, none of our experiencing is all good or all bad. Uh, it just is, and we need to deal with it in the best way possible. Uh, and meme making is actually an example of a very creative, adaptive, and powerful mental manipulation strategy that helps growth and cultivates resilience. But here's the, here's the important thing, I think, and that is to acknowledge that really what you're doing is simply rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. Really what you're doing is you're manipulating symbols. But why not? Because we can, and that's a, a human capacity. So why not use that capacity, but know it for what it is, simply the manipulation of symbols. So when I create new sentences or phrases or pictures about an experience that I've had earlier in life, I'm, I'm conscious that what I'm doing is a little bit of mental trickery. But it's mental trickery to my advantage. And it's mental trickery that resonates with who I am as a person and the qualities that I have and what I value in life. So it's, it's quite meaningful for me to rearrange how I understand an earlier traumatic event that I've experienced it. But, uh, and you know, I've, I've, I've rearranged how I've understood an earlier trauma and then I've rearranged it again a decade later because I've, I've changed in that decade. And now I look back and I've got a slightly different perspective. So I tweak the meaning. So it's an ongoing process for the rest of my life, um, understanding, making meaning, uh, connecting, reconnecting with past traumas, past difficulties in my life. It's, it's really the, the true sense of the observer, that, that the mindful you know, witness that we can also see how meaning-making uh, is a process that we're just moving deck chairs around, but also observing that there is some utility to that. Yeah. And, and, and it doesn't mean that we are uh, uh, trying to negate the truth, but we're actually even potentially asking a question around, you know, 
the truth where we're we're kind of saying this is all information or this is an experience and and if i can sort this out over time i can revisit it as many times as i want to and find one that potentially has some function or some value or, or allows me to live with it in, in a better way i can choose that until i review it again whether it's a decade later uh, or, or, or so i know one of my friends a dear friend uh, might call him a best friend in actual fact passed away uh, not long ago and uh the the thing that i always say which is my meaning making and, and i know it's complete nonsense but at the same time it's completely true uh, so i think both those things can be there is that he gave me one of the, the greatest gifts of, of being incredibly young in my life to to learn the lesson of uh, making memories with my family you know he's no longer able to do that and that was taken away by tragedy uh, but he's given me a gift and at least that's my story at the moment but that doesn't mean that my pain or the pain of his wife and kids has has gone it's just one part of of that and i know his wife would also say he's given her uh, and and and, and the kids uh, lots of beautiful uh, memories and 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 uh things to 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 uh, live for too um despite their ongoing great pain uh and then we can also turn around and say, well, that's just a narrative. Yes, it is, but it's a helpful one for me. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I'll probably just develop it further as we go along in life. Um, uh, and because it, because I've somewhat fused, if you will, uh, I've kind of connected with that so strongly, um, uh, I think it does make me a bit more resilient or hopeful or, or, or able to continue to live life and, and, you know, for genuine, in, in genuine ways, actually have, have improved my life in, because of his tragedy. Um, uh, or at least I've been able to kind of reflect on it that way. So I, I would much rather he be back uh, on this earth and, and, and not have that, that um, insight, but uh, at least that's the way that I can view it. And, and, and that's my meaning making, if, you know, trying to put piece what you've discussed today um, to myself. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Uh, I think it's a really great example of uh, meaning making uh, while at the same time uh, acknowledging the pain around um, that person's passing. Uh, and, yeah, I think stories, the story that you've developed around his death and the part that he's played in your life and how you're being a friend of his um, is, a, is a valid story because it comes from you and your experiences. And stories are powerful. Stories are very, very powerful. I mean, you know, our culture, storytelling is an essential element of cultures, whether they're Western or Eastern or whatever, you know, storytelling. Is, is has has existed for the time that mankind has existed. It's powerful. So let's just use this wonderful creative ability in the best way possible to advance our own lives and the lives of others. It also just reminds me of of when there is tragedy. We do tend to get get together 
uh, or adversity, we get together with our, hopefully with our friends, with our family, and we we talk about it. We, we put stories and narratives and, and we all say, you know, this is where I was when I heard the news. This is what was going on for me. We, we start to absorb it into our own life and, and put a structure around it. And, and you know, in, in a year's time, we probably relay that story, but it's changed a little bit. You know, we, we, we change elements of it. We might exaggerate some things. We might uh, forget some aspects. It, it keeps evolving. Uh, and we know this, you know, in, in our research tells us how, how our, our memory is, is, um, has quite, quite, quite a lot of limitations. Uh, but there's, yeah. there's a lot of story that goes into adversity. Yeah. And one way to uh, make meaning and to develop a, a, a helpful story around adversity is to write about it. Uh, and there's a lot of research that's shown uh, people who write about their adversity do better than people who don't write about it. That makes a lot of sense, even though I haven't looked at the research. But it makes a lot of sense because I think we can ruminate easily by ourselves. But I think when you're writing something down, it's hard to say the same thing over and over again. So you get much more clarity and you can observe the words. You can re read the words. It's almost somewhat diffusion in action so 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 to speak um and then you can rewrite it you can say no those words don't actually fit there it's better described with this word you know and obviously that's that relational frames that 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 um are in play there where we're trying to find the right synonym uh, to describe something in a particular way that's a great uh tip uh, to, to take away that to write about it can be helpful Kenneth, I know that you've also uh, uh, done some writing yourself. Uh, I, I was going to ask you, you know, how can people find out more about this? I, I believe that you've written a, a memoir yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I uh, published my memoir. Uh, the book launch was the day before Brisbane went down into lockdown because of COVID. Uh, and the memoir really uh, is called The Trauma Banquet. So the, um, it, it's not an autobiography. It's themed around my experience of trauma as a very young child and uh, later in my life and uh, how that informed and shaped my understanding, my thinking, my personal growth, uh, career directions, relationships, uh, and how I have um, how I have used my psychological training and skills to manage the trauma. And so, I think what is uh, interesting is that uh, with all my psychology training, I have three degrees. I'm a professor in clinical psychology. I've practiced for 40 years. Uh, with all of that experience, I could not eradicate the pain, the emotional and psychological pain associated with early childhood trauma. 
And so I decided that um, if I couldn't get rid of it, I would utilise it and I would use the pain uh, to my best advantage. Now, I'm 70, so that's a long case study. You know, as a clinical psychologist, I would work with people for six sessions or so, and seldom would I see them a decade or two decades or three decades or four decades later. So who knows what happens to those people? And who knows what happens to the research participants in our psychological intervention research? But I know what's happened to me, and I've had a, a reasonable amount of, you know, psychological self-help resources, and I'm 70. And I'm no different from my clients in that um, I have experienced um, great psychological pain uh, as a result of events that are out of my control. And so uh, how does that work? How does someone so experienced in psychological practice um, manage the very human suffering that we target in our psychological practice? And so the, the memoir is called, uh, the primary title is The Trauma Banquet. The subtitle is uh, Eating Pain and Feasting on Life. And that subtitle reflects these two important processes. We've touched on the eating pain. That's the acceptance, the, the integration, the embracing of pain, but not being stuck with it. And then the eating life is really about uh, being directed by passion being directed by what you love, what's important to you, what you want to make your life about. And so those two processes occur in parallel. You can't have one without the other. And most of us want passion, pleasure, and joy and love but we don't want the pain. But the reality is that the embracing of pain, natural pain that we have no control of that comes to our life uninvited, embracing that pain can actually invigorate our joy and pleasure and passions in life. Uh, and that's really what I learned. I learned that I couldn't, I couldn't get rid of the, the memories. You know, one of the most significant traumas was um, my mother committed suicide. She drank a bottle of uh, garden poison, and I was I had just turned thirteen. Um, so not only did I lose my mother, I in a sense died with her because I lay on the bed with her as she uh, essentially died, and it was very unpleasant, of course, poison does all sorts of horrible things to the inside of your body, which most, most of which has to come out. So um, it, it was a powerful, powerful uh, experience that reached right into my DNA. 
And, uh, and of course, so that's a part of me. And there's, um, there's no way that I can get rid of it. And I've, I've tried to experiment with all sorts of medical and non-medical and psychological uh, strategies. Um, and I would say that that experience is an experience that um, is profoundly painful, but I, am, I have embraced it all the way through. I had the intuitive uh, good sense as a 13-year-old not to lock that experience out of my existence. Because if I had locked that experience out of my existence, I would have locked my mother out. I would have locked my relationship with her out. And she was a very wonderful, positive influence in my life, despite her suicide. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that she was my mother. So I would have locked all of that magnificent but painful reality out of my life. So I would have been half alive not fully alive. So embracing the pain around that trauma and many others uh, has enabled me to be a fuller person. And there is nothing more powerful than to have the courage to face and stand with and embrace your inner pain. Kenneth, I just want to thank you for sharing that uh, with me and, and the audience because I can understand uh, my own pains, but I can't understand others. And to hear about those um, does assist with understanding my own pain better. And uh, I, 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 can only imagine, especially from a 13-year-old, how, how we grapple, wrestle, fight with something like that and, and uh, it gives me great hope to be speaking to you today as, a, as, as you know, someone of, of a mature and, um, and in, 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 in an esteemed uh, 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 position as well with your accomplishments uh, to to see that we have ways around the, 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 these great adversities, uh, but it doesn't take away those pains. It, it, it's the meeting of that pain which makes the difference. And and uh, what you've just said is a, is a uh, is a uh, elegant example of of. That, that difficulty being there and, and that it doesn't just happen. It, it actually is an ongoing process and I, I assume it's a continuous process. It hasn't gone away, but yeah. you probably yeah. hold it differently you know, today than you did yeah. some time ago. You know, here I am 70 and um, I still get these spontaneous they're just spontaneous. They just arise within seconds. Uh, thoughts, images, um, not necessarily images, they're mostly like a thought. Sometimes they're images, but of death, 
you know, I'm going to die. Like it, it, it might be a thought or an image of me dying, or my dog is very precious. Um, I can be walking along the street and then all of a sudden this, this like image of my dog being mauled and ripped apart. Now that it sounds dramatic and I've never had that happen. I've never seen it happen. Um, but, uh, it, and it's just seconds. And of course, naturally, when you see something so gruesome, as that, your body tenses up and my heart races and my, my muscles tense up. And I'm speaking of something that all takes a matter of seconds. But here's what I do. I know where it comes from. That's my understanding. I can make sense of it. Mm. I, it comes from this powerful experience that I had when I was a little vulnerable 13-year-old. And so it should. Um, and so I know it. I watch it. I recognize it. It's not wanted, but it has a right to be there because it spontaneously arose within me. And, and so because I don't resist it, because I don't sort of try to get away from it or, or get angry because it's there, it passes. I keep walking. I keep breathing. The dog keeps walking. The dog keeps breathing. The sun still shines. The breeze still occurs. The traffic is there. And life goes on. But um, something like that uh, happens fairly regularly. It's sort of like you know, post-traumatic stress disorder, although I wouldn't fit the clinical criteria for it. Um, and this is the inadequacies of, you know, clinical diagnosis, because in a sense, I still have, I call them echoes from the trauma events that I experienced as a young child. Um, and I have learned to deal with them through diffusion, acceptance, through present moment awareness and through that most powerful element of human, our awareness, the capacity to observe in it experiencing, to observe the, the reverberations, the real reverberations for me of a past trauma, to watch that and know that I'm watching and I don't have it, I am more than it, is so powerful. And, of course, I do all of that. And the one thing I am so focused on is making a mark in life that only I can do because I'm unique, the same as another person is unique and they can only make the mark that they need to make. So I'm so focused on doing what I can do best, doing what I'm passionate about, doing what I love, that all of the trauma just comes for a ride, my ride, to what I want to do in life. Kenneth, I thought today we would be talking about your research and your life's work, and I think what you've given me is so much 
more than that and I just want to say thank you because uh, what you've described and, and, and I think summarised in, in uh, particularly these last you know, 10 or so, so minutes uh, I think really speaks to the heart of, uh, of life and, and how we can uh, try and understand it and navigate our way through. So I genuinely want to say thank you. Um, that, that really spoke to me uh, and, 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 and touched me and I know that we'll all get a lot of value out, out of that. And, and I think it's something special also that it comes from you know, a, a uh, fellow clinical psychologist who uh, has done all the training and, and, and you know, written, you know, programs themselves and, and is a practitioner and, and a scientist, but uh, most importantly is a human uh, and, and coming to this conversation as a human first uh, is, is um, very powerful. So I just wanted to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Just before we finish up, for those who might want to find out a little bit more about your works, uh, where can they go to? I know that you're very well published and, and, and the like. I'm not sure if you're still researching, uh, but where can people find out more about you or get in touch? Yeah, I'm definitely still researching. We never got a chance to touch on um, the COVID research that I'm doing with some international teams looking at the mental health impacts of COVID and then looking at uh, the factors that protect people from the adverse impacts of um, COVID. So, yes, so it's still doing research. And that means then that you can find out about me and my email address, et cetera, from the University of Queensland website. So, I am retired, but I have an honorary role as an emeritus professor at the University of Queensland. So I still supervise PhD students and I still do research and I still do what I love doing in the academic sphere. So you can contact me via my email and you can find out more about me on the YouTube website. You can go to Google Scholar and look at my publications. And my memoir, um, can, The Trauma Banquet, can be located in any, from any online book retailer or any bookshop will be able to get the book in. But it's freely available or easily available um, online. I'd encourage everyone to... Uh follow up on, on, on any and all of those. I think there's a lot to, to, to learn and just want to thank you again. And, uh, you know, thank you for your contributions uh, as well. We, we uh, really, I think all benefit from, from uh, hearing uh, you know, experienced and wise voices like, like, like yours. And uh, it's, it's um, something I'm, I'm, I'm uh, definitely going to take a lot away from. So thank you again. Yes, thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, 
develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.